Hello and welcome to Tools in the Shed, a podcast powered by Cars Guide, ready to rip into car stuff that's caught our eye this week. I'm Cars Guide Deputy Editor James, and with me are Managing Editor, Head of Video, Matt. Hello. And Deputy News Editor, Justin. Hello. This week, we're discussing Kia's potential rise to the top of the Aussie new car heap. We'll look at three recent entrants to Cars Guide Garage, and we'll catch up with arguably the world's greatest exponent of ready, fire, aim business strategy in this week's Muskwatch. Uh, and look, if you want to jump ahead, you can see the time codes in the notes below and the chapter markers in, in the timeline. So uh, please feel free to do that. But otherwise, stay with us, because first of all, we're going to talk about Kia. And uh, our own Stephen Otley wrote a news story through the week that uh, captured a lot of people's attention. And it was about the fact that seemingly the likes of Mazda and Hyundai have, have kind of given up uh, trying to chase Toyota because Toyota just regularly uh, sells a couple of hundred thousand cars each year, owns one fifth of the market, and it's very, very hard to topple them. Mm -hmm. But his thesis is that Kia stands a good chance um, particularly if they have some some particular new product in the near term. Justin, what have you made of, of Kia's rise, particularly relative to its Hyundai uh, sibling in, in recent years? Yeah, I think it's been particularly telling in the last couple of years where the market overall, um, up until the last couple of months, had declined for uh, two and a half years, basically, um, but during that time, Kia was buoyant. You know, it was the only top 10 brand that was still increasing its sales. Obviously, that margin uh, became quite thin uh, this year, but it was yeah. still increasing its sales when the Hyundais and Mazdas of the world were shedding sales like no one's business. So, um, yeah, it's really proven its worth, I think, over the past two and a half years and the past 12 months, of course, as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Kia certainly seems to be heading in the right direction, whereas the Hyundais and Mazdas uh, are cooling yeah. off. So it's reasonable to expect with the right product, there could be an intersection between those brands and then perhaps Kia goes second and, and might come close to challenging Toyota. But like Whoa. you said, with a market share of 20% plus, Toyota's oh. going to be pretty hard to catch in the short to medium term. Stephen, uh, Stephen yeah. mentioned where they are currently in the rankings. I think are they sixth? Or something. They're they're yeah. uh, in the in the top ten. They're mm -hmm. number six. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, number six. They got Ford and Mitsubishi ahead of them, and then obviously Mazda and Hyundai as well. But um, Ford and Mitsubishi, they'll pass this year for sure. It looks like it, and um, particularly with new product on board. Well, the thing with Ford and Mitsubishi, the whole point of the the story, right, is that Ford and Mitsubishi sell more Utes and SUVs than anything else. Um, yes. And this is where Kia has its chance to yes, really yeah, grow. Right. Um, on the same token, you know, we look at uh, Mazda, for example. Um, a few years ago, Mazda was selling four or five thousand Mazda three hatchbacks and sedans per month. Yep. Uh, and now that number is a shadow of its former self. Mm. Um, I think that is telling of the, the market's shift towards SUVs. However, uh, Mazda has a lot of SUVs in its ranks and yet hasn't um, yeah, necessarily kept yeah. pace. So, And it has a ute in its ranks. Now, it doesn't have a ute-based SUV as part of its lineup, but uh, and it won't ever uh, according to um, the Mazda and Isuzu people that I've spoken to, in terms of a you know the new BT50 being based on the D Max, yeah, uh, 
next MUX, there won't be a Mazda version of that, apparently. So, um, you know, I don't think Mazda is ever going to be back in the in the challenger spot there either. Um, Hyundai, same sort of story, i30 uh, hatch and, you know, before the Elantra was now the i30 sedan, um, i30 in the small car s- spectrum was massive. Yeah. Um, not so much anymore. Uh, yeah. Same sort of story with Kia. Needs a ute and an SUV on top of it uh, to... Uh, really challenge for top spot. Well, a- just just to try and um, pluck out the, the stats that Stephen mentioned in his story, in 2015, uh, Kia, he says, was very much Hyundai's little brother, selling 33,736 cars. Now, that's a lot of cars, mm-hmm. but that's just under 3% of the market. And Hyundai was selling just over 100,000 and had 8.8%. Come up to 2020... Kia sold 56, over 56,000 cars. That was a bit of a decline, actually, on 2019. But say they're up, you know, giving 60,000 cars a nudge. Market shares above 6%. Hyundai's down to just under 65,000 and 7.1%. 7.1%. So they're, they're getting very close as well. Yep. And probably Hyundai, not only the i30, but the sub i30 um, realm is where they've sort of struggled. We've still got Kia having a Rio and a Picanto in that sort of sub 20K space. Now there's nothing from Hyundai really in the sub 20K zone. Um, I had a question uh, on our Instagram page this week because I've got a new uh, venue long-termer. So venues, the compact Hyundai SUV, Supposed to be the cheapest car in the in the lineup, um, you know, at about twenty two thousand bucks. But um, there's still a gap underneath there where you've got Picantos at fourteen or fifteen thousand dollars drive away, and yeah. Rios at eighteen thousand dollars drive away. Now that's that's rare air these days. And I'm I'm for what it's worth, I'm a big Picanto fan. I, I really yeah. like that little car. And yeah, and me too. Stephen also makes the point that in twenty twenty one you're going to have the first full year of the Sorento. Um, the Celtos will continue to add sales, be joined by the Stonic. Um, we've got the story on that very, very shortly. Uh, new Stinger, possibly E-Nero, which is good from a branding point of view. But then he reckons the thing that might just kick it up that next gear uh, is the, the potential for a ute and for that uh, heavy-duty off-roader. Justin, what do you reckon? Yeah, We've obviously heard a lot about the Ute and, and what have you for kind of years now, and it certainly seems like it's potentially on track for a year or two from now, maybe, uh, if they stick to timelines that were discussed previously. But, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think at one point in time they were aiming for about 10% market share in the Ute segment. Now, obviously, the size of that segment continues to fluctuate, so who knows if they're still chasing 10% and obviously what volume that'll be. But Either way, 10% is going to add a significant oh. amount of incremental sales uh, to their overall tally. Yeah. And then on top of that, you know, if there is an SUV uh, based on the ute, you know, along the lines of an Everest or a Pajero Sport or a Fortuna, yeah. um, again, that's obviously not going to deliver as many sales as the ute, but it's still going to deliver a decent amount of incremental sales. Um, so you add those two together on top of everything else. Like you said, JC, a full year of Stonic, a full year of Sorento. Well, those models by the time Ute and SUV come out will have, have been around for a little while, I guess. But yeah. either way, they'll have so much momentum behind them and pretty much a model in every segment. So, yeah. um, well, it's, you know. It's, it's also the question that we've been asking on a regular basis about the Telluride, which um, in my humble opinion is a great looking large SUV 
but so far it's been a consistent no, it won't be available for Australia. It's not a, mm. not a right-hand drive prospect. But, I mean, in so many instances we've heard that and then miraculously yeah. um, the car actually is uh, modified for right-hand drive. So it seems to be waiting in the wings almost. Yeah, I think Telluride for us is certainly in terms of this generation off the board. Uh, the reason why, yeah. unlike the Palisade, which it's related to from Hyundai, um, Palisades uh, built in Korea, so they can you know make a right-hand drive version, which they did for our market specifically. Um, but the Telluride is made in Georgia in the states, and the demand in the US for the Telluride, which won World Car of the Year, uh, is extremely high. So they just can't justify yeah, right. giving production to one country that's right-hand drive, you know, let alone the re-engineering effort. But theoretically, second generation Telluride, you know, if right-hand drive production was available out of Korea like a Palisade, then yeah, I think it's a bit of a no-brainer for yeah. Kia to bring it into Australia. Yeah. Isn't yeah. it funny that we've still got these, um, I guess, geo-specific uh, things like uh, having a, a US spec SUV that's only for America or North America. Um, it just seems so weird for such global car manufacturers as Kia and yeah. Hyundai to have that sort of focus on one market um, is kind of at odds with what they sort of sell themselves as. I yes, mm. a, a truly global brand. Yeah. But I suppose from a cost point of view, the further you spread that web in terms of sales, the more notches you're ratcheting up in terms of what it takes to actually build the car. Yeah. As yeah. always, it's just a big cost impost and the logistics and whatever. So if you're making super good money out of that car and the factories, you know, the sausage machine is pumping them out in the States to then say, all right, we're going to send it global. It is always a pretty big decision, I'd imagine. Yeah, definitely. And for us, obviously, being a right-hand drive market, it's it's particularly difficult because, again, a product like Telluride would do very, very well in Australia. But for right-hand drive production to be justified, theoretically, you'd have to get the UK and Japan on board. And you would, neither yeah. of those countries are going to take a car the size of a Telluride. No, obviously, the Palisade was the exception to the rule because that did get across for Australia. But, you know... It's, it's, it's interesting. In the UK, they more or less kind of laugh behind their hand at a Land Cruiser 200. It's yeah. like, oh, look at the size of that thing. Mm. Um, it's, it's ridiculous over the top, so you're absolutely right. But, but I think part of the, the thing with Telluride all the way down to Picanto, I just think Kias are looking fantastic as well. Not only have they got the different segments covered increasingly, but they're covering them with products that have a lot of appeal, a lot of visual appeal. Uh, and very well equipped for the money. I mean, it's it's a hard formula to beat, really. Yeah, we um, did a comparison test recently with the uh, Sorento and the Santa Fe, um, and it isn't live yet, but stay tuned; it's coming soon. The <laughs> um, the the photographer that we were working with was like, "Oh my god, I can't believe how beautiful this Kia is! Like, just the the styling on the outside." And you you talk to people. I've never ever had so many friends or friends of friends contact me about a new car as have the new yeah, Sorento yeah, because yeah. they're seeing it in the street. They're seeing those Mustang style taillights and that sort of concave grill and headlight treatment and just going, what is that? That's, that's beautiful. Like, I know. And then, great, you know, it? the, and the new, well, the facelifted uh, Santa Fe is no, um, shrinking violet when it comes to its appearance either it's a it's a bit of an eye-catching sort of vehicle and it's yep. got you know things like those massive 20 inch wheels on the vehicle that we had um and it looks great but you know does it stand out as much as the sorrento maybe yeah. not. <laughs> and look, the other the other not wild card but the other thing to 
factor in is the seven-year warranty, unlimited yeah. kilometres that Kia's had for so long now. And sure, Mitsubishi has come in and, and slammed down a, a, a 10-year and, and on it goes. Uh, but, but that's stood them in very good stead as well. A hundred percent. I think that's, oh, I was just going to say that I think that's um, part of the reason that they've been so successful in Australia. You know, if you can sell a car that's four years old, that's still got three years of warranty on it after you've done your business with it, then how good is that for your resale? Too true. Too true. All right. Well, um, this decade from a Kia point of view is obviously going to be very interesting. And uh, Stephen Otley's theorising that it won't be too long before they're pushing 70,000 sales, in, he says, in the next year or two. Um, that's pretty big. And I suppose Toyota's just starting to have a quiet look over, <laughs> over its shoulder because, you, you know, every regime ultimately changes and Kia could be the next one. It'll be very interesting to, to watch. Don't forget um, Toyota is so successful as well because it has a model in pretty much every single segment. And the only other brand that seems to be wanting to do that is Kia. So, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, I mean, it's everything that goes with it, isn't it? To, to sell that volume of cars, you've got to be a big operation in terms of your retail footprint and everything that goes into supporting that. So Kia has to be building the back end um, at the same time as it's filling the product portfolio so yeah. it's, it's a large undertaking and it doesn't happen in five minutes, but um, it seems to be uh, on the rise. Yeah, and just going back to the, um, the budget end of the market, like you were saying, Justin, filling the gaps, you know, there's the, the Yaris now is, what, 20-something thousand dollars starting point, yeah. where it was always traditionally a 15K start point car. Now, Toyota has nothing in that space anymore, um, and will that damage that brand in the longer term? Could it be the the moment that sees not just the Kias of this world, but the MGs of this world um, mm. stand up and, you know, have a, have a space that they can play in that no one else is going to be there with them. Yeah. I don't know about you guys, but MG awareness for me has gone through the roof. They're everywhere. Um, yeah, you know, yeah. in, in urban areas, the, the car park is filling um, yep. with, with MGs of different description. But uh, so there's another one, another yeah. one to watch. But Kia, Kia's done the hard yards, seems to be... Um, bringing them a fair bit of success. Yeah. Um, now, look, thank you very much for that, guys. We'll move on and we'll move in to our garage and cars that we have been driving in recent times. Justin, we'll start with you. Uh, it's big. It's luxurious. It's polarising. Tell us about it, please. Well, first of all, a confession. I've actually never, ever driven a Land Cruiser 200 Series derivative before. I've Whoa. driven 70 Series, I've driven a Prado, but never a 200. So this isn't a Land Cruiser 200 necessarily, but it is a Lexus LX 450D, which is basically the same thing, but in a suit. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. is yeah. no less... Slightly shiny, a shiny suit. Yeah. It's a, it's a shiny suit, but uh, yeah, it's, it's no less intimidating on the road, but... Um, yeah, it's, it's been quite an experience. Obviously, we know, uh, you know, there's a 300 series coming soon and then predictably next generation Alex after that. So we really are in the twilight moments, I guess, of, of the life of these cars. So it was interesting to actually get in one before it gets replaced. And yeah, I mean, what can you say? It is a hulking vehicle. Um, <laughs> definitely one of those cars you get into and you're looking down on everyone. So <laughs> there is definitely a sense of superiority <laughs> when you're driving it. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's very comfortable. It's very Lexus, despite the fact, obviously, it's very Land Cruiser as well. But you know, it's a very plush interior, 
lots of nice materials and yeah you just feel pretty nice and obviously air suspension as well so it rides beautifully too uh plenty of torque from the four and a half liter v8 diesel um so you're getting plenty of shove when you put the foot down as well and and i haven't driven off road uh this particular week but um just on road around town and it's definitely not a car for in town necessarily uh some people just want to get out of your way if they see you coming towards them um they want anything to do with you but uh yeah it's it's an impressive vehicle it's obviously the same engine as the 70 series then yeah, the yeah, four and exactly. Half but, okay. but with an extra turbo. Um, Is it? Okay. To, yeah, to get it across the line. So it's got, a, obviously, more power and torque, 230 kilowatts of power, 650 newton meters of torque, but... What I would say is it's definitely showing its age a little bit in terms of tech and overall feel, particularly inside, it's a bit dated. Um, so, yeah, once the 300 series and Alex next generation comes along, I'm sure it'll be a, a massive leap forward. As we know, there are plenty of new technologies rumoured for those vehicles. So, um, yeah, I think it's about time it says farewell, but uh, it's still an impressive beast nonetheless. Yes, um, I think it would say au revoir. Yeah. yeah, sorry. Or or yeah. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, would the uh, would do you think that there's going to be any sort of delay between the ending of the 200 and the ending of the uh, LX? Like, do we have any sort of crystal ball? Like, are they going to um, end at the same time, or is there potentially a chance for uh, Lexus to pick up a little bit of the slack of the V8 sales? That is a very, very good question, actually. I would suggest that the the Alex will stick around for a little longer. I don't know how much longer, but definitely in terms of 300 series and, and next generation um, Alex, there'll be a gap of some description, definitely. Mm. Um, 300 series will obviously take the lead for a little bit there. But um, yeah, it's a great question. I'm not 100% sure on how long, but yeah, mm. there'll definitely be a gap. And then and- the, the LX is such a hangover, isn't it, in that all the other Lexus models have their own distinct personality in terms of the way they look, the way they feel. Yeah. And there's this one that is just so blatantly um, a reworked Toyota product. Um, it, it's a real hangover from times past. And that's a good point, actually. And it goes to your point too, Maddie, as well. Um, you know, RAV4 has been around for a couple of years now, but we're only seeing NX... Uh, new NX this year, right? Mm. So it's at least two to three years behind. So, you know, potentially if it follows a similar timeline, which it might not, you know, we might be waiting two more years for a new LX and three uh, 300 series may have been around for 18, 24 months by that point. So, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see, JC, how much they differentiate 300 series from new LX, whether or not, again, they're unashamedly similar looking or oh. maybe they put a bit more effort into it. If there's a time delay, there'll be people, you know, up on the Gold Coast just looking down on their white shoes, shuffling around, waiting for, you know, how long have I, how long have I got to wait? Certainly. <laughs> <laughs> now, thank you for that. And Matt, we'll move on to you. Your chariot of choice in recent times has been? A GWM ute. Uh, the new Chinese, you, yeah, you bet it's Chinese. Uh, we've we've copped uh, quite a bit of commentary on our um, social channels and on YouTube um, about the fact that it is a Chinese Ute, and you know, there's all sorts of politics around uh, the relationship with China at the moment, uh, and whether or whether you know whether or not you should be uh, buying Chinese products. I mean. You'll make up your own mind about that. Our job is to uh, get new cars and review them and give you the best info we can. 
Uh, and that's what we've done with this new GWM ute. So just to clarify, it used to be Great Wall uh, in Australia, but now it's GWM as the brand. Ute is the make. So um, where it was steed before, it's now known as Ute. Uh, and, and what's the Canon situation, Matt? So is, it, is it a Canon or not? Canon is variant. So, okay. um, for example, if you've got uh, a Re Kia Rio S, a Kia Rio SI and a Kia yep. Rio Sport or whatever it may be, um, yep. you've got a Great Wall Canon, a Great Wall Canon L and a Great gotcha. Wall Canon X. Oh, okay. Sorry. Yep. It's a GM Ute Canon L and a GM. I was going to say. <laughs> oh my God. Not at all it's confusing. Not at okay. all. But this is, this is the challenge for any uh, company that has to do uh, rebranding. And, you know, whether it's rebranding because of um, some issues with its reputation is um, something that you might have to uh, think for yourself. But um, I think that this new GWM Ute is basically three generations better than the last one. The, the, the steed that I drove um, just a couple of years ago was um, a, a couple of generations behind. Yeah. It was a bleep <laughs> box. It was yeah, right. yeah. pretty average. Um, yeah. It was actually worse than average. Um, mm. But this, this new one is uh, on the edge of excellent for what you're paying for it. So that's the biggest thing, you know, like start points 33,990 drive away. Um, through to 40,990 drive away for the top spec one. The top spec one has like quilted leather. Uh, it's got a really pretty impressive cabin for the money that you're paying. And that's again, for the money that you're paying. Um, and uh, in terms of the drive experience, it's got now a two liter four cylinder turbo diesel engine, uh, 120 kilowatts, 400 Newton meters. It's uh, an pretty pretty good engine uh, it's got an eight speed auto now there's been a few um, at odds reports of how that auto behaves so in the ute that i drove it was mostly pretty good i didn't really have any issues with the automatic transmission in other reports that i've read um, it's been heavily criticized for being uh, really fussy and fidgety and right, not really right. choosing skiers well um, so i guess it um I'm hoping that this isn't the case, but um, it might depend on um, who's driven it before you. It might have adaptive software that chooses right. how the transition yes. behaves. Yes. Um, but, you know, it in all in all, for the, the price you're paying, um, I can see why uh, this could maybe uh, ruffle some feathers in the world of the Tritons and Navaras um, of Australia. Yeah. yeah. Um, maybe not it's probably not going to be able to nudge people away from a Ranger or a Hilux if they've got their mindset on it. Yep. Uh, but some of the comments that we've had uh, on the, on the uh, YouTube was one was um, I canceled my D max order because I drove this and it was good enough. You know, right. um, another gotcha. one was gotcha. we can buy two of these for the price of a high spec Ranger. So um, those are the sorts of things you might need to factor in, uh, especially if you're making this decision for a business rather than as a personal vehicle. Sure. Um, yeah, that's something to think mm. about. So a couple of factors come to mind for me, which would be longevity and resale. So yeah. yes, yes, you can get two for the price of one, but I suppose what might they be worth a little way down the track and what kind of shape are they going to be in? Yeah, true. And I mean, um, they've adopted a seven-year warranty and five years of roadside assist as part of this program um, as a rebrand. Um, that's definitely going to help in that regard. Yeah. Um, resale, I mean, that's a, a crystal ball job. Um, and I think that, you know, any ute um, that's worth 
the resale that it can garner um, is something that you should invest in if you think that you're going to hold on to it and want to yeah. sell it for something in the end. Yeah. Um, but for, you know, if you are thinking about this as a business vehicle, if you run it for the seven years of the warranty for 35 grand as a cost of doing business, that's not much money. So uh, um, it's, it's pretty compelling in that regard. True, true. Good call. Okay, fantastic. So thank you for that. I will chip in and I'm going to talk about um, the car that I have as a long-termer at the moment, and it is an Audi Q7. Now, it's a 50 TDI S-line, so I think it's close to the top. It's about second from the top of the mainstream uh, Q7 range. 119, nearly $120,000. Three-litre turbo diesel V6, eight-speed auto with the Quattro all-wheel drive. It's about 2.2 tonnes, so it's a big beast. Uh, 210 kilowatts, 600 newton metres, but it will do zero to 100 kmh in six and a half seconds. So it's still got that kind of goes like the clappers feel to it. And really, in that market, that's, that's a fair chunk of change. But you think about an entry-level BMW X7, which is the X-Drive 30D, so similar kind of powertrain, is 133,900, so nearly 134 grand. A Benz GLS 400D is 100 and almost 54,000 dollars. So yeah. it's pretty competitively priced uh, for what it is if you're in that market. And so far, it has proved itself in terms of space, just so much room, uh, and very comfortable. The performance, the premium quality, it just exudes uh, premium quality. The ride, it's got the air suspension um, safety to the max. It's just mm -hmm. chock full of active and passive safety tech. So I've just been picking little nitpicky things. Like it's a beep fest when you're parking that thing. You, you're <laughs> trying to go into a car park and at different frequencies, different um, speeds, it's beeping at you all over the place. <laughs> you can hit a button on the console and turn all that off. But that also turns off the reversing camera and the overhead view yeah. right when you need them most. Yeah. So you're kind of thinking, mm, what do I put up with? The beeps or no cameras, uh, which is a bit annoying. And it's got three beautiful screens. It's got the, um, the cockpit screen. It's got the two in the, in the centre console. They look pretty messy very quickly <laughs> when, when the fingerprints are all over them. Yeah. Um, it's, it's not a good look. But Audi does uh, very uh, thoughtfully give you a little... Uh, cloth to clean them with in the glove box um, but also there's no spare um, just a tire repair kit only and that's a bit of a bugbear for mine not just with Audi but just not having a spare tire um, it just doesn't feel good but so far the relationship with that car has been terrific I think it's a really good product um, and, and our family's enjoyed it a lot so yeah it's it's an interesting one JC um, looking sort of in the um, the non-premium space below that sort of yep. price point. Yep. You know, you've got the, the likes of a Hyundai Palisade now, which has um, the same sort of space inside. Um, and I'm wondering whether you think that maybe that sort of vehicle could be a threat to the likes of the Q7s and so I forth. think you get into that ethereal realm of what is brand perception and, and what are people actually buying sometimes when they buy a car. Yep. Um, so they'll tell you it's all about the safety and it's all about the quality and the resale. It's actually about the badge. Yeah. And and they want to own an Audi, not a Hyundai. Yeah. Um, so I suppose as Hyundai, it's more maybe a Genesis. You know, would they would they think about a Genesis um, as yep. opposed to that Palisade becomes the equation? But um, that's just down to each individual buyer. If you look at it pragmatically, just uh, totally subjectively. 
uh, sorry, objectively. Um, yeah, there would be a strong competition there, uh, but the market tells a different story, really. If only there was a Telluride, eh? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> but that, 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 for mine, I think it's one of the best-looking uh, large SUVs out there, that Telluride. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, really a fantastic-looking car. So there it is. Anyway, um, but now we are going to touch on some feedback that we had um, from last week's episode, and we were talking about rust in pieces, the, the vehicles that we waved goodbye to. Um, some are fond farewell, some not so fond um, from in 2020. Now, we had feedback from, I'm going to give this a red hot go, Esteban Posada Duque um, said he liked our rust in pieces title, thought that was rather funny, um, and he says that Ford is heading to its own graveyard. That's his quote. Um, in Brazil... Three plant shutdowns, and of course we did have that news just recently where they've shut down all three plants that were operating in Brazil. It says EcoSport, an antiquity car with airs of new. Um, <laughs> Fiesta and Focus quitted. Um, what the fuck are they thinking? <laughs> Regards from Medellin, Colombia. So um, he's right in the thick of it in, in South America, and he thinks that Ford is just slowly, it's a, it's a slow motion train wreck, and um, that the pull out of Brazil is kind of telling. Wow. Yeah. Um, but it's great that we've got people listening in Colombia and, That's awesome. and watching. It is awesome. <laughs> now, then we got into a bit of an arm wrestle, which was quite interesting, about Apple CarPlay. Now, we touched on that when we were talking about the success or otherwise of various models uh, last week. And Joel Bowden says, I have to disagree with you on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto. I have it in my now not so new car and find that I never use it. Then he actually admits, used it once when I bought it but just can't seem to see any extra benefits it gives over the inbuilt system, which does all the same things. If I need sat-nav, then I just save myself the hassle of plugging in and use the inbuilt system, which is perfectly adequate. Never understood the hype over the two systems. And a couple of different <laughs> commenters agreed. Let's see if very strongly agree, all caps. Um, and TGV felt pretty much the same, although he says the Ford Sync 3 system that obviously in his vehicle works very well. Um, but then... Tin schlong, tin schlong. And I thought that's a very interesting material for uh, schlong fabrication, uh, by the way. Um, says, you know, you are in the minority and makes the point that Toyota was definitely losing sales while they weren't able to offer um, this, this technology in their car. Um, and TGV then comes back, the very fast train, comes back and says, you know, that's okay, but out in rural areas, um, Android Auto, Google Maps is useless. Um, and Tin Schlong comes back and says, yeah, good point. Um, and he actually discovered that he had a rental car down in Tassie, I think, and the, um, his phone wasn't connecting. He couldn't use the, the CarPlay or Android Auto. He regretted not taking his Garmin. But then he found that you can still buy a Gregory's physical street directory. And I also know you can get a Melways. And all those old school physical books, you can still get them. But I got to say, I'm on the side of I think Apple CarPlay and Android Auto are terrific because mm -hmm. they do actually mirror the functionality of your phone so closely, and they're I find them very easy to use. I don't yeah. know about you guys. What do you What do you the, think? The, th the thing is with all this, right? There are probably off the top of my head only three manufacturer multimedia systems that are worthwhile using. Right? <laughs> the rest of them are bettered by a significant degree by Apple CarPlay, Android Auto, whatever it may be. So as far as it goes for day-to-day -day use, yeah, 
I mean, yeah, I would be plugging in my phone. But I guess for some people, there might be a hassle of having a cable in the car or maybe remembering to plug in your phone. But we are slowly entering the era of wireless Apple CarPlay and Android Auto. So there's almost no excuse not to at least have the option there yeah. and, you know, hit the button and actually, you know, engage that functionality. But yeah. obviously, yeah, in rural areas, the Google Maps or whatever is not going to help you. Inbuilt sat-nav wheels, so completely understand that point and agree. But now, for, you know, 90% of other uses, like, I'd be using it. That's only partly true. You can download the maps onto your phone yeah, um, you can. if you are okay. going out of range. So Great point. Great um, point. If, you, if you do want to go somewhere where there's no phone reception, you can do that. That is a possibility using Apple CarPlay and Android Auto. Yeah. But I will say this. Um, I'm with you, Justin. I agree that there is uh, nothing better than when Apple CarPlay and Android Auto work well, but there's nothing more frustrating than when they don't. <laughs> so I've had um, an experience recently recently uh, in a Skoda, I've had a recent experience in a Volkswagen, in a Hyundai, in a Kia. Uh, and when it doesn't work well, it's the most annoying thing that you can possibly imagine because, right. like, for example... As opposed to a hot stick being poked into your eye. That's well, really annoying. None. It, this is more annoying. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, for example, the Hyundai I was driving was the um, base model Santa Fe, which um, oddly has wireless... Apple CarPlay where the higher grades don't because mm. um, they have sat-nav built into their systems where the base model doesn't. So the mm. base model one uses wireless Apple CarPlay, ah. but it dropped out every 30 seconds while I was using it. So mm. I was connected. The phone was right next to the screen. It was all good. Um, and it wouldn't let me connect via USB. It would only allow me to do it via Bluetooth. So uh, it uses Bluetooth or a combination of Bluetooth and Wi-Fi to do the wireless thing. Um, and it was every 30 seconds, it was like, there's a fault with your machine. And I'm like, okay, I click that and it comes back. And then again and again. And uh, there is nothing more annoying. Like I said, uh, for the Great Wall Ute uh, that I drove recently, no faults whatsoever. So, okay. Oh, well, I yeah. suppose it, it does feel a bit like, not for the first time, we're in a beta testing phase, aren't we? You know, it's actually out there yeah. and in the market, yeah. but it's kind of not finished. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, the, the one that gets me, I really take your point in for, um, the, the, the one that gets me is when you've been connected in a particular car, you've turned the car off, the phone is still in the centre console, everything is just as it was, leave the car, come back, start up again, and it's not recognising the yeah. Apple CarPlay connection. And you have to go through that rigmarole again. JLR, I'm looking at your products and, and um, uh. some others do that. Um, so that, that really is a teeth grinder. Mm -hmm. So that's a really good point, I suppose, that when it's working well, great, but it feels like there are some, some little ticks and whatever. I'll also say my Jimny, which you can see behind me, um, oh. I, I installed an aftermarket Sony head unit with Apple CarPlay and it has never once failed. So Wow. Is that the car or the CarPlay? Um, no, the car's failed. <laughs> <laughs> the CarPlay exactly. hasn't. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Fantastic. Um, now, so that was that. And also, just to answer Wax333, our Kiwi friend, he came at us and said, when's the review of the GWM Canon coming? And there we go. <laughs> yeah. we, have, we have answered his question. So I hope that helps. But now, it, in terms of helping, it is time for Muskwatch.
Right. So, first of all, really good story. Really good story on, on TechCrunch uh, by Mark Harris. And I wondered whether the former, you know, rugby league legend had actually started working for TechCrunch, but sadly he died in 2020, I discovered. Uh, but more than a 1,000 purchases of the boring company Flamethrower, now regular listeners and viewers will know we've covered this off, they'll be aware of it anyway, where to generate some funds for the very young, um, boring company, Elon came up with this light bulb moment and said, why don't we sell flamethrowers? Uh, now, actually, they ended up making 20,000 of these things and they sold them at $500 each. So they made 10 million bucks out of selling these flamethrowers. Um, and when all said and done, they're um, functionally similar to a propane torch, which in the States more often is used for melting ice, sometimes killing weeds or applying some roofing materials. But it's been styled like an assault weapon. Right? So it's, it's meant to look like a, a fair income flamethrower or some kind of weapon. And the fact is that over a 1,000 of these things, according to this story, uh, purchases abroad have had their devices confiscated by customers' officers or local police, with many facing fines and weapons charges. Um, in the US, the flamethrowers have been implicated in at least one local and one federal criminal investigation, there have also been at least three occasions in which the boring company devices have been featured in weapons halls seized from suspected drug dealers. And we've got, we've got a picture of a weapons hall and amongst all of these horrendous-looking automatic weapons is a boring company flamethrower. Oh, man. So, you know, it's just uh, one of those things. And when Elon was in his famous uh, Joe Rogan podcast interview, uh, Rogan asked him, you know... Um, about these things and how he got away with it, more or less. And he said, we're told that various countries would ban the shipping of it, that they would ban flamethrowers, Musk told Rogan in 2018. So to solve this problem for all the customs agencies, we labelled it not a flamethrower. Um, did it work was the question. And Elon said, I don't know, I think so, yes. But the correct answer was no, um, <laughs> because they've had lots and lots of problems. Um, and this story in TechCrunch actually extended the thought out to autopilot and FSD as to whether or not that's misrepresenting something. Um, it just seems to be a little bit of a, a theme. So I thought that was interesting too. Mm -hmm. um, then the Cybertruck, the Cybertruck. Um, on Twitter, a person bot called Ryan McCaffrey said, having owned a DeLorean for 12 years, I never thought I would see another mass-produced stainless steel car again. I keep having to remind myself that this is going to be a real thing on public roads in one year from now. Now, Elon thought that was pretty good. But Matt Farah, who, uh, for those who know him, is at the smoking tyre. He's an American uh, automotive uh, uh, commentator, journalist, call him what you will. He says, I bet you a DeLorean you won't. <laughs> and he's, he's pretty, he's pretty anti-Tesla and a little bit down on Elon, I must say. Um, but then others said, is it me or does this car look like it was designed on a Commodore 64? Mm -hmm. And in the same vein, another person said, this thing is, looks like it was created in Minecraft. And on YouTube, and we've got some footage of it, one person, OMG Craft, actually created a Tesla Cybertruck in Minecraft. <laughs> so it is actually already available. And um, M. Wengler says, in one year, possibly in one Martian year, and that is, I found out, 687 days, so maybe a couple of years, and Sean Walsh made the point that it's got to be on a lot of people's minds. This looks deadly. 
to pedestrians and cyclists. <laughs> so, you know, and others were saying there's no way this thing is going to be sold in Europe uh, as it is. So whether we see a Cybertruck that looks remotely like that uh, prototype, uh, we'll see. But that, test, uh, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say that Cybertruck was what, more than a year ago? Oh, way more than a year ago. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 19, the end of 19. The end oh, of 19, right. Yeah. yeah. Bear in mind, we were going to have the roads to last year too. Uh, yeah. Plus, yes, plus a million robo taxis. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. All that. All that. So on it goes. Um, but the share price for Tesla has been pretty much static. Uh, eight hundred and fifty dollars just over for a share, and it was eight hundred and fifty-four last week. But a website, I caught a story on a website called Small Caps, and they were putting the theory that Elon Musk has proved that a stock market bubble is here. Now, they were quoting an investment guru in the States called Jeremy Grantham, and he says that the single most dependable feature of the late stages of great bubbles of history has been really crazy investor behaviour, especially on the part of individuals as opposed to institutional investors. And that has officially now come to pass. Um, and he says, it was, they say, it was none other than the crown prince of overvalued companies, Elon Musk. <laughs> who showed the extent of the bubble. Now, he tweeted, use signal, just two words, use signal. Um, that was read by his 42 million uh, Twitter followers. Now, what he was referring to was encrypted messaging services where um, WhatsApp uh, is due to be changed uh, in terms of privacy conditions. And so he said, look, use signal. But people misread that and um, they thought that he actually meant invest in Signal Advance, which is a tiny medical device company. So they forced the price of the baffled company up 11,708% in three days. Oh. It sent its market value from 55 million to more than 6 billion as the shares flew up from 60 cents to $70.85. So once, and this is from TechCrunch, once this group of trend-following buy-now research later lemmings eventually realised they'd made a monumental mistake, they sold off the stock like it was a petrol-powered car and the shares dived. So what they're saying is this kind of ridiculous behaviour is typical of the late stages of an investment bubble and these people will do more or less whatever Elon says and that's a pretty graphic example. Mm. Uh, wow. Yeah, just wow. Anyway, look, with that, we have reached the finish line. I want to say thank you, Matt. Thank you. And thank you, Justin. Thank you. And thanks to our meme librarian, innovation hero and tax avoidance time bandit, Mr. Pritchard, for his technical wizardry and sartorial elegance. Today, he's wearing a T-shirt saying 98% chimp, noodle pants and panda shoes. They're actually ramen noodles too. Very, very tasty look. Uh, <laughs> let us know your thoughts. You can find Cars Guide on Facebook and Instagram or email us at comments at carsguide.com.au. If you're an Apple Podcasts listener, please rate and review us. Remember, you can also watch us on YouTube. And if you are already, make sure you subscribe to the Cars Guide YouTube channel so you can stay on top of all our latest content. But before we go, you're driving in a car at a constant speed. On your left side is a drop-off. The ground is around 40 centimetres below the surface you're travelling on. On the right side is a fire engine travelling at the same speed as you. In front of you is a galloping horse 
which is the same size as your car, and you cannot overtake it. Behind you is a galloping zebra. Both the horse and zebra are also travelling at the same speed as you. What must you do to safely get out of this extremely dangerous situation? Get your drunk ass off the merry-go-round. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's good. That's a good one. <laughs>